You are now listening to the April 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's program includes Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101.
Grace, your host for the Christianese 101 program. Today, I will talk to you about the word tabernacle. Do you have any idea of what a tabernacle might be? It isn't a common word used in our daily conversations, so it might be difficult to define. A tabernacle was a place where Israelites offered sacrifices to God in the wilderness. It was also a place for God to dwell amongst the people of Israel, and it was also a place of worship. For an easier explanation, it was a meeting place between God and His people of Israel. As you may already know, the Israelites lived in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. At the center of where the Israelites pitched their tents in the wilderness was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where the presence of God was signified that God was living with them. Let's talk about the Hebrew word for tabernacle. Tabernacle can be translated into two different words, ohel and mishkan. In English, a tabernacle could also be called a tent. Now, let's look at the difference between tent and tabernacle. Tents obviously indicate a canopy, or a curtain. So this is ohel in Hebrew. So when ohel is used, it is used to emphasize the characteristics of an ordinary tent. On the other hand, tabernacle can be translated to mishkan in Hebrew, which emphasizes the dwelling place of God. To recap, the tabernacle is a place where God dwells. And when we say tent, it literally means canopy. This is why there's a big difference between these two words, tent and tabernacle. So, the basic meaning of tent is a canopy, which is laid out to be inhabited. And because the canopy is filled with the presence of God, it is called the tabernacle, the holy tent. As I have said in the beginning, this tabernacle was made when the Israelites spent their time in the wilderness after they left Egypt, and also when God dwelt among the Israelites. The place where God dwelled was the most sacred and holy place. The tabernacle wasn't just a place to offer sacrifices to God, but a house of God, a keeping place for the word of God, and place where God spoke. It was also where God met with the people. What do you think? Do you now understand the difference between tabernacle and tent? After the Israelites settled into Canaan and later declared Jerusalem as their capital, God's tabernacle was made permanent as a holy temple built on Mount Moriah by King Solomon. It was not a portable tabernacle anymore. They had built God's holy temple in the heart of Israel. But after Jesus ascended into heaven, God sent His Holy Spirit to those who believe in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit now dwells in those who believe in Him. I will finish this program with what Paul states in Ephesians 
chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What a wonderful passage to meditate on this week. And my hope is that you will live as God's holy temple with the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Until next time, goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Did you know that there are several different ways that we hide when we're involved in pornography? Or really, it doesn't matter what sexual sin, but we hide in different ways. And it's been my experience that nothing good rarely comes out of hiding from something that we know is wrong or immoral. You know, one way that we, we hide is by lying and trying to cover up our sin, which really only leads to more sin. Uh, we may not see the immediate ramification of that, but you can bank on the fact that those consequences, they're coming. Unfortunately, hiding and lying, that tends to be our first response, doesn't it? We, we just don't want to come clean. We want to protect ourselves. And for many of us, man, we'll, we'll go to great lengths to do that. And these unbelievably elaborate lies that we tell ourselves, we actually believe them, don't we? We convince ourselves to believe these things. But when other people don't believe us, then the lying, well, the lying leads to anger and then around and around the spiral we go. So today's lesson is about hiding. This podcast is part one of two and is from a larger lesson. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The sex spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where we are in this habit, this bondage or this addiction to pornography. And make no doubt about it, porn is a series of predictable habits that we've created ourselves. But you know what? When you know where you are inside this habit, when you know where you are, when you have a, a map you can follow, well, then you can choose to break the habit. It's like looking at a giant map at a, a shopping mall. Have you seen that? You see the big, you know, the red dot there, it says, or an arrow that says, you are here. <laughs> uh, so if you know where you are, then you can see the exit signs around you and you can make the choice to then leave. And you do have a choice. You, you always have a choice. The good news is that there are multiple ways to exit the sex spiral. At any one of these triggers that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, and you, you can exit the spiral by praying, by fleeing, and by confessing. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, why sexual sin demands isolation. Number two, why it's extremely important to realize why I go into hiding before I choose to sin. And then number three, the reality that when I choose to hide, I'm moments away from acting out in sin. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is The Two Sides of Hiding. 
I'm going to open us up tonight with uh, a devotional from Oswald Chambers. If you guys don't know that name, this is a, a resource for you. This is called My Utmost for His Highest. And uh, today's devotional really spoke volumes to me, so I'm going to share it with you. Oswald writes, we do not grow into a spiritual relationship step by step. We either have a relationship or we do not. God does not continue to cleanse us more and more from sin. But if we walk in the light, we are cleansed from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. It's a matter of obedience. And once we obey, the relationship is instantly perfected. But if we turn away from obedience, even for one second, Darkness and death are immediately at work again. All of God's revealed truths are sealed until they are open to us through obedience. You will never open them through philosophy or thinking. But once you obey, a flash of light comes immediately. Let God's truth work into you by immersing yourself into it, not by worrying about it. The only way you can get to know the truth of God is to stop trying to find out by being born again. If you obey God in the first things, he shows you, and then he instantly opens up the next truth to you. You can read volumes on the work of the Holy Spirit when five minutes of total, uncompromising obedience would make things clear as sunlight. Don't say, "Ah, I suppose I will understand these things someday. You can understand them now, and it's not a study that brings understanding to you. It's obedience. Even the smallest bit of of obedience opens heaven, and the deepest truths of God immediately becomes yours. Yet God will never reveal more truth about himself to you until you have obeyed what you already know. Beware of becoming one of the wise and prudent. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know. John 7, 17. So good stuff on obedience. Once again, my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers. All right, guys, tonight we're going to be moving into hiddenness. So as we look at the spiral itself, we've gone through the awareness, unhealthy thoughts, the temptation itself, the desire to want to act out resistance, right? We learned how to resist the proper way, the godly way. Rationalization from last week, all the things that we tell ourselves, which are absolutely absurd. They sound good at the time, right? I'm going to talk myself into the sin, and now hiddenness. Now, if I don't flee, pray, or confess here, I'm going to move into this place of hiding so that I can go act out. So on your worksheet, key point number one, sexual sin demands isolation. It demands isolation. It will physically and mentally take you away from your friends and your family. Um, Open your Bibles to Proverbs 18, verse 1. There is a ton of scripture when it comes to hiding. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Notice the word desire. Seeks his own desire. 
keep in mind, that's the whole purpose of, of the temptation, right? Temptation is the desire for me to actually do something. Uh, flip over to Genesis chapter 3. I know we keep going back to this Genesis passage, but it's so deep when it comes to this idea of human nature and sin. And it just kind of goes to show us that the morality of sinfulness of people hasn't changed since the beginning of time. Genesis 3 uh, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, Hey, where are you? Adam said, Well, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right, One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture to where the Lord God Almighty actually walks with mankind, walks with Adam in the garden, builds that relationship with him. And then one day, this happens, he hears him walking in the garden, and he runs from the Father. Turn to Isaiah 59, 1 through 3. We haven't spent a whole lot of time in Isaiah. He's one of the major prophets. He's one of the writing prophets, Isaiah chapter 59, starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. So note there in verse 2, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So that's interesting. We've got scripture that says mankind is now going to run away from God because he's scared. And now we've got our sin that actually the Lord hides his face from us. And he actually doesn't hear our prayers because of our unrepented sin. Let's look at Jeremiah 23, 23. Another major prophet. Jeremiah is also known as the weeping prophet. He did not have a great job. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a, a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Let's turn our attentions to Micah. Micah chapter 3, verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So once again, the Lord is hiding his face from people whose deeds are evil. So as we go through this, this spiral or this cycle, whatever we want to call it, you'll notice that we haven't, we haven't sinned yet. Trigger number seven is where we actually act out and sin. But we've actually gone through six triggers and we haven't sinned yet. Now, some of you can make the case, well, I've, I, I started sinning here 
with the temptation by what I was looking at, or and that might be the case. But the reality is that a lot of us think, guys, that until we get here, that this is actual actual sin. It's really important to understand that this is not the only thing that's wrong. This whole thing is wrong. This whole thing is called sin, right? But technically, we haven't acted out yet, so we haven't sinned yet. We have to understand there's something about the ritual and the chase of our sin as well. There's a whole leading up to the acting out part here. So in hiddenness, if your sin is pornography, you may stay inside hiddenness for hours before you actually act out. You may look at porn for hours, or you may just blow through all of this stuff, and once we get to the rest of it, and it just continues to spiral out of control. And the important thing here is if we don't learn to break the cycle by, number one, fleeing, praying, confessing, ultimately this is about trusting God, not trusting yourself, about trusting the other men that are around these tables, you'll ultimately, you just, you'll never get free. You've got, we, we have to learn how to trust in a God that loves us so much that sent Christ to take care of something that we never could. Turn your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 19. So God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Isn't that true, guys? I mean, we just, even when, when our walk is so solid with the Lord, there's something about the seasons of life to where we just want to be alone. We just, we just want to rebel. There's a part of us that loves the darkness more than the light, right? No matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, there's that continual sin that, is, that needs to be flushed out of us. And just like Oswald wrote, the best, fastest way for that sin to be flushed out is by simple obedience. I actually laughed out loud when I read that this morning. He says... You can read volumes of theology, but all you have to do is spend five minutes in obedience and you're going to be a lot better off. Anybody testify to that? Is it in Ecclesiastes or Proverbs to where the Lord says, uh, you guys keep reading and reading and reading and it's not doing you any good. I think it's Ecclesiastes. I have to check on that. So people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. Make no doubt about it. When we get down here to acting out, this is called evil. What we do with our bodies and with our minds is evil. So key point number two, it's extremely important to understand that what I'm about to do must be done in hiding. You're not going to go do what you do in public, right? Even if you go to a strip club or a massage parlor or pick up a prostitute, it's, you're not going to bring someone else along to do that. You're not going to call your group partner and go, hey, let's go to the the place on the corner down here before the group, right? Key point number three, when I choose to hide, I'm moments from acting out in sin or moments away from acting out in sin. When I choose to hide, I'm moments away from acting out in sin. But once again, let me point you here. Now, when you're here, we all know that 
fleeing, praying, confessing, you just throw that out the door because you're moments away from experiencing the pleasure that we're in bondage to or addicted to. But you can still break the cycle. When a person chooses to trust somebody at any of these trigger points, the power of that sin is broken. And it's broken because sin will always be broken when it's brought into the light. Why is that? Well, it's because we're trusting in someone other than ourselves. There is a spiritual transaction that takes place when we choose to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We were created in Genesis 1 and 2, the very image of God. God is Father, He is Son, and He is Spirit. He is three distinct persons involved in a community as one God. And we are designed, we were meant for community. You know, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Don't be fooled by any who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things that these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. You know, one way to expose these worthless deeds this darkness, is not to give evil and darkness an opportunity to even enter your home. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, you're invited to my weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, together, divorced, separated, it doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We are in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor and email me your questions. I would love to hear from you. You can go to DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the Apostle Paul writes, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power, my friend, it's the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Where the dearest and best 
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. 
This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with Covenant Eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels, with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is A Love Song Gone Very Wrong, Part 2, based on Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 30. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. This point, Israel was probably saying, Injustice, unrighteousness, what unrighteousness? Things feel pretty good. I mean, just think about it. In context, it's right during the the reign of Uzziah, right? It's about to get into chapter 6 where we talk about him and his uh, reign and his death. That springs forward into his season of ministry. But before that, in Uzziah's reign, it was a peaceful period. I mean, it was a kind of time that would be easy to feel comfortable about life. Things felt good. They looked good. Things seemed to be pretty safe. And here in the midst of this, Isaiah's coming in and saying there's a problem. And they're saying, problem? Life is good. But here's what we find in verses 8 to 30. God explains the kind of justice and injustice he's talking about. And he promises that man will be humbled as God is exalted in justice. A man is about to be humbled as God is exalted in justice. So catch this. In these verses, we're going to move from a love song gone wrong to a lamentation, right? A song of lamentation or lament. He is about to enter into what we would call a woe oracle. It's like the lamenting the death of someone at a funeral. So we move from almost like a wedding song to a funeral song. And that's important because it educates, I believe, the tone that Isaiah would have delivered this with. See, he's not condemning his people. He's not sitting there speaking this word with a a twinkle in his eye and a disconcerned kind of voice as though it's not part of his deal. No, commentary Gary Smith, I think, says it well when he says, in lament, the speaker actually sides with the sorrows of the audience with an emotional attachment. He's actually emotionally attaching himself to the listener so that he is empathizing and and he's sad with him in those words. In other words, there's no twinkle in Isaiah's eyes. He talks about God's just wrath. See, Isaiah likely, hear me, he likely wept as he cried out each successive woe because his heart bled for his people whom he loves. That's the nature of the way that this message, I believe, would have originally been delivered. Not excitedly, but brokenly over the nature of what God's people have done, which is, by the way, His people. In other words, here we see God's justice being coming out through the mouth of Isaiah. And I believe this last section is actually structured in such a way that it tells us what His main point is. So here, if you're thinking, like, how is this broken down? It seems a little bit chaotic. Well, actually, there's six woes. And I believe that basically what you have is you have two woes followed by 
two therefores. And then you have a couple of verses that seem to sort of stand out after that as the main point. And then you have four more woes followed by two more therefores. You get that? It's not exactly linear like the way that you would like, but it definitely highlights what God is doing here. And what we'll find is, is that each woe describes a present behavior of God's people. Here's a specific bad fruit that I've seen that results, catch this, in a future therefore promised response by God. And that's what the therefore is there for. So don't miss this. Everything seemed great to the successful, and they never suspected the reversal that was coming. A future was coming that they did not feel or anticipate. And here's how we see it. In verses 8 to 12, notice first we see God's people ran hard after prosperity and pleasure outwardly. There he says in in verse 8, look there with me. He says this, beginning in verse 8. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of His hands. See, God's not condemning money in this first row. Maybe that's what you're thinking, is this woe is condemning just having money. That's not what he's doing. See, this isn't the Christianized version of Notorious B.I.G.'s famous proverb, mo money, mo problems. That's not what he's saying. No, in fact, at the end of the day, the Bible teaches something different about money, and it's really concerned the Bible with two questions when it comes to money. One is, how did you get it? And two is, what did you do with it? Those are the big questions that the Bible asks about the money that you have. How did you get it, and what are you going to do with it? And here I believe that that is exactly what we find Isaiah speaking to the people of God about. How did you get your money, and what are you doing with your money? You'll notice that a number of different ways, but notice first that it looks like these rich got it through ill-gotten gain. Now maybe using the law, maybe they were using the law to take advantage of the poor, and even evicting their neighbors to add to their own material mansion personally. That could be what verse 23 means when he's speaking of taking advantage of the poor. He might be talking about the way that they were manipulating the system so that it works for them and takes advantage of others. But did you catch how Isaiah shifts to the future tense? And he says, many houses shall be desolate. And then those fields that they took will be spectacularly unfruitful, just like they have been spiritually. See, we also see how they they used it. That's how they got it, but how did they use it? Well, it goes on to say in the second woe that their money is gotten and used in this way. The second woe tells us they're drinking and partying from early in the morning to late at night. They are literally entertaining themselves to death. Now, they are thinking all about the money that they have made and taken and the money that they are spending and the pleasure that they are getting from it. And they've completely lost sight in all of this pursuit of pleasure. They've lost sight of the deeds of the Lord and the work of His hands. Did you catch that? Verse 12, that's the problem. They've lost sight of God. It's not bad to have a good party. It's not bad to have material possessions. It's bad when it has absolutely hidden the hands of God from you. 
That's exactly what we find here. The deeds of the Lord speaks of His creation, of humanity, whom He created, created as the pinnacle of His creation. The deeds of the Lord speaks of Israel as a people whom God redeemed out of slavery to Egypt to make a possession of His own. They also forgot God's law, which came with blessings for obedience, but curses for disobedience. And they had forgotten all of that. See, times were good. The bank account was full. The houses were paid for. The family was growing. Everybody had braces. There was peace in the Middle East, and they felt pretty self-sufficient. And their just God was nowhere in sight in the present. And they never considered what was coming. They never thought about it. They never looked forward to it. Let me just stop for a second. Did you know good times be even more dangerous for you spiritually than bad times? Did you know that good times are dangerous? See, it's easier to look to yourself than God when things seem to be good without God's help. When good just seems to roll and you don't have to pray, you don't need to seek God because everything just seems to work out, that's a dangerous place spiritually. See, here, their just God was nowhere in sight in the present and they never considered what was going because things were just so good. It's also easier to get caught up in the moment so much that you lose sight of God. And when we lose sight of God, we begin to imagine that God has lost sight of us and doesn't see us. And yet all the while, God is looking for fruit. He's looking at you and He's saying, you may have forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten you. Where's the fruit? That's exactly where this garden has found themselves, this pleasant plant of Judah that God has planted Himself. And the consequences that come, they seem extreme, but this is the God of gods and the Lord of lords that made them and created them for a purpose. And he says in verses 13 and 14, the consequence is exile and death. Notice verse 13. He says, therefore, as a result of pursuing pleasure and and money rather than me and forgetting me, therefore my people will go into exile for a lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. See, God evicts His people because they evicted each other. And the leaders who made the poor go hungry and thirsty experience the exact same thing. Not only that, notice what verse 14 says. It goes from bad to worse. Exile leads to death. He says in verse 14 that a death monster is coming. Did you catch that? A death monster who has an enlarged appetite for those who have a great appetite for alcohol. Death has opened up, Sheol has opened up his mouth wide for the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude. They will go down, her revilers, and he who exalts in her. Death and exile come for their outward actions, for the fruit of their actions. But catch this. 18-23 to shows that God's people become increasingly corrupt inwardly. It's not just their outward fruit. He says there's also an inward motivation that's going, that's driving this whole train. Notice that there, these four woes, in verses 18 to 23, might even show an inward kind of progression that's happening in their hearts. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 18. Listen to see if you can hear it. Verse 18, he goes on to say, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let me be quick, 
Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bride and deprive the innocent of his right. See, in verse 18's woe, you even there see, I believe, potentially a kind of progression. Cords are weaker than cart ropes. So it seems at first they merely draw sin with cords of lies, but then their bondage to sin grows to the point that they actually are mocking God, inviting Him to come in all of His holiness as they are dragging their sins behind them. There is no shame at God showing up. They're actually inviting Him, God, if you were holy and righteous and just, then why don't you just show up and do something about this? They have no fear of the Lord. Of course, you know what Proverbs says about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. They have no knowledge. Why? Well, because they have no fear of the Lord. There's no fear of the presence of God in their lives. And notice the next woe in verse 20 reveals that as a result of that, they are morally corrupt. They call good evil and evil good. They don't know the difference between their left and right hands. Does that sound familiar? Sound anything like maybe you've experienced in in culture, in our culture? Just this past week, I had a a good brother whom I love just come to me and say, you know, my wife has left me. I've tried to be faithful. I pursued this. And he said, you know what? She told me that she doesn't want to be married to me anymore because she was sure that, that God wants her to be happy more than she wants him to be married, her to be married to him. Just think about that. God's word couldn't be more clear. He hates divorce. And yet there was no striving or pursuit of that marriage because she has decided that good is evil and evil is good. Culturally, is, is it any different? Have you noticed how like, we have kind of decided to change the way that morality works and we think God's okay with that, right? So we look at things like abortion, which is just obviously killing a baby. And we say, oh, well, you know what? It's okay. Why? Well, because justice works in this way. It's the right of the person who is having the baby to get rid of the baby so that they can pursue their own happiness and joy and fulfillment. Friends, that's not the justice of the Lord. That's not what God's Word teaches clearly. And yet, we see in our culture all around us ways that we are calling good evil and evil good. Let me just ask you personally, could it be even as a Christian that there are ways that you've been so affected by culture that you are calling good evil and evil good? Every, hear me, every culture has blind spots. And every individual has blind spots. Ways in which we self-righteously think some things are good when God actually says they are evil and things are evil that are actually good. Are you praying and seeking those in your life? Are you asking others about your blind spots? Brothers and sisters, we need to do that in the community of the church. We need to have the humility to open ourselves up to be changed by God's Word. All of us need to be transformed by the renewing power of Jesus Christ and His Spirit in our lives. Well, this leads, this view leads to a third woe. It leads to a new court of authority in verse 21. Notice this woe shows that really post-modernity isn't so new, right? You know, post-modernity, that view that says that I determine truth for myself, 
uh, because we can't really trust that there's any objective meaning out there. There's no truth that we can all agree on because that would sort of assume that there was a God who created that thing and that we're all seeing this thing that actually finds its reality anchored in something else other than us. And if we don't believe that, well, then what's got to be true must be what, like, I decide's true and what you decide's true and you and you, right? And we're just all, we all have a truth that doesn't have to be in line with one another. Like, that's post-modernity. And that's, like, not a new philosophy. That's a biblical philosophy. In fact, if you're just interested just for kicks to see how that plays out, let me encourage you to go read the book of Judges this afternoon. That book is really grounded in this one sort of statement where we are told that in those days there was no king in Israel, and what? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you know how that ended. It was disastrous. Israel looked worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in their sin when they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what we find happening here in this third woe. People are doing what they want. They have no concern for their Creator God who has made them for a purpose. See, a godless society, don't miss this, a godless society simply lacks the freight necessary to deliver freedom to the poor and meek and weak in any meaningful way. A godless society can't do it. Why? Because only human dignity grounded in their creator God can explain why value isn't merely equated to intrinsic power and wealth. We have value that is in our God. It's not based on my bank account. It's not based on my intellect. It is based on my God. And if we don't have that, then we're going to have a really hard time explaining why people actually have value other than by how much power and how much bank account they have. But catch God's response to Judah and their sin in verse 2, and in, in the two therefores that follow. In the verses that follow, these two therefores, we're told two responses. First, verse 24, they will be devoured like stubble before a flame. Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they despised His word. I guess God cares about His word, right? Not only that, catch verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuge in the midst of the street for all His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still it is an unrelenting arm that has been stretched out against the people of God did you catch that did you catch that that God is also angry he's angry with his people it actually this verse 25 it begins and ends with the anger of God just in case you forgot from the time that it takes you to get from the beginning to the, the verse to the end of the verse that God is angry he reminds you like God is angry with His people, don't miss that. He says He is angry with them in an intense way. So much so, don't miss this. This might help you understand Edwards a little more. It says that corpses fill the streets as refuge for the fire of His fury. Those corpses are His people. I'm guessing that verses 26 to 30, which go on to describe this perfect army that will come relentlessly against them, devouring them as a lion devours his prey as he tracks it down i'm guessing that this speaks of assyria who is about to come in 722 and then 150 or so years later and 586 babylon is going to come and take away judah i think that might be what's in view here that they will be the arm of god outstretched 
It was hard for them to see such devastation coming from where they were and the safety of their large, ever-growing houses and with their busy schedules of parties. But catch this, God is saying Assyria and Babylon are the expression of the just anger of God. Circling back to a couple of verses that I skipped, which are the main point of this whole text, notice what he says in verses 15 to 16. Here's what he says. And the structure of the woes, I believe this is the center, verses 15 to 16, conveying the main point of the second half of Isaiah 5, or the whole chapter, and here's what he says. Listen to what they say. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. Eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Now don't miss this. God actually justly judges his garden in anger, visiting them with wrath, not for bearing good fruit that glorifies God and blesses others. That's what God created them for. So you see, our loving God who cared for his garden, who loved them, provided for them in every way, expecting good fruit, which is the natural result of a good gardener and his good practices. But here we see that our loving God's justified anger and wrath, it will be satisfied. If God did that to Israel, does that not tell us that God is serious about his just wrath and anger? And here's the bad news. We need some bad news this morning. We haven't gotten enough, right? Here's the bad news. Our loving God is still angry about stinky fruit. It's true. One of the most popular verses after judge not lest you be judged is John 3.16, right? For God to love the world, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the love of God. Favorite verse. I love what my wife always says when people quote that verse. They always forget to mention verses 17 and 18, right? What does verse 18 say? John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him, being Jesus, is not condemned. You hear it? Forgiveness? But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So if you've not trusted in Christ's work of living a perfect life and dying in your place on the cross and being raised again from the dead, that means that God's still angry with you. And that the wrath that you face is even greater than the wrath that we see in this text. See, Jesus says rejecting the gospel means an even greater coming wrath than Sodom and Gomorrah. And even our best deeds, apart from Christ, are filthy rags and stinky grapes before God, heaping up more judgment for us. I mean, just think about that. Apart from Christ, even our good works are actually adding to the justice and the wrath that's awaiting us. That's what Romans 1.18 says. It says, The wrath of God is revealed for heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, the truth of the gospel, and who Christ is. So as Edward says in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this is the bad news, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. Being damned up, they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And if God were to remove his hand from the floodgate, which is only by his mercy and grace that he doesn't, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of God's wrath would rush forth with inconceivable fury, and would come upon you with omnipotent power. That is the just 
wrath of God that we deserve, if not for the mercy of God, all of us would receive. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. There's some great news this morning. Here it is. For those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus himself drank the very last drop of the wrath of God for you. Do you see that? Do you see the beauty of that? We deserve to be worse off than those Israelites whose bodies were burning in the streets, and yet God in his infinite mercy spared you and me. And he did it at the very cost of his own son who went to the cross to absorb God's very wrath for you and for me. That's the love of God on display, that he took back not just some wrath of human uh, enemies. See, our biggest problem isn't our human enemies. He actually took away our guilt before him, our sin that deservingly earned his wrath. He took that away and absorbed every last drop so that we would no longer be enemies but the very children of God. That's the good news. God has has taken back the wrath for those who have put their faith in him. I love what Romans 3.25 says. Here Paul tells us, he teaches us a $10 Christian word. You know what a $10 Christian word? Anybody? I don't have 10 bucks to give you, I'm sorry. It's been a long week. But here's a $10 Christian word. It's worth it. Propitiation. You like that word? It's a big word, right? Let me tell you what it means. It's a big word. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that you need to stick in your vocabulary, you need to meditate on. This is a great word. Propitiation. Propitiation is a word that is used in this text in Romans 3.25 where Paul says, God the Father put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation. That's in the Bible. That big word. By his blood to be received by faith. And you might be thinking, that sounds awesome, but what's propitiation mean? Propitiation means that God's anger and wrath has been satisfied by his own self-sacrifice of his son whom he has loved eternally. God absorbed the wrath meant for you in his son. No one has loved you like God has loved you in Christ. No one has given you freedom and rescue like God has given you in Jesus. Nobody has sacrificed for you the way Christ has sacrificed for you and the way God the Father has sacrificed for you. Isn't that a joyous understanding? Propitiation, what a great word. It means that God's anger and wrath, it has been satisfied by his own self-sacrifice. He is no longer angry with you anymore. He is no longer angry with me anymore if I'm in Christ. And not only that, not only is he not angry, it's not one of those things where he just kind of looks at me at the hall and gives me a nod. He says, I love you with the love that I have loved my son eternally. And that's what propitiation means for us. The wrath has been removed. Do you see the good news? God is angry with everyone outside of Christ, but God is pleased with those in Christ because of Christ's work. So if you haven't done so, let me just encourage you this morning. You're here and you've not put your faith in Christ. You've not given your life to living for Him. I want to encourage you to do that today and change your life today. Be changed by Christ and His Spirit. See, fruit, fruit is not something that saves us. It's something we need to know. Jesus saves us and justifies us and makes us righteous in such a way that we produce fruits of righteousness that look like the God who saved us. So here's what that should mean for the believer. First, abide in Jesus for fruit. Abide in Jesus for fruit. John 15, great text to read and meditate on. Abide in Jesus. 
How are you abiding Jesus? Let me just ask you some ways you, you can be abiding in Jesus. You abide in Jesus. Are you studying God's word? Did you notice that God really cares about his word? <laughs> like, so says Isaiah. So says the whole Bible. Are you focusing, looking at, meditating on God's word such that his thoughts become your thoughts to the degree that you are thinking with the mind of Christ? Meditate on God's word. Pray. Pray. You have one mediator between you and God. That's Jesus Christ. So if you're wanting to abide in Christ, spend much time in prayer as you are having the Son intercede with you before the Father, asking Him to help you be transformed in the image of that great Son. Seek to observe or live out all that Christ has commanded you. You know, when you go to your Bible, maybe you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, this is a book where like, I kind of can pick and choose what's okay for me to do or what I'm supposed to do. I like to do the stuff that's easy. I don't like to do the stuff that's hard. But let me just encourage you. There's a lot of hard stuff in there for all of us. There's a lot of hard stuff in there for pastors, youth ministers. Uh, there's a lot of hard stuff in there for uh, you know, guys who are uh, lawyers, doctors, teachers. Uh, whatever it is that you're doing, there's a lot, you're always going to find hard stuff in the Bible. And let me just encourage you. When you are seeking to do things that you know that you can't do on your own strength and that are really hard, that's where you probably meet with Jesus the most. Looking to put sin to death and live unto God. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to, by his spirit, transform you. And if he transform you, that means something needs to change. And all of us hate change, right? So as soon as you feel that pressure of like something's changing, I don't like change, it's like probably God's doing something, right? So don't think of it as bad. Think of it as good. Also, are you living faithfully in a local church, committing yourself to it? You know, the way that God brings about fruit and a lot of the ways that you see fruit is actually demonstrated not alone, but in community. How are you living out life with others? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you seeing more relationships and joy being brought out? Are you helping people? Are you finding that actually you're destroying relationships and you're hurting people? Like that's a good picture of whether or not you're actually bearing fruit in Christ and for Christ. It's hard to abide in Christ without abiding in his body, the church. Much fruit is produced in community. Are you finding yourself to be more patient? Is that because you're spending more time alone? And second and finally, share Christ because you know the joy of salvation and the fear of God's justice. You know, those, the, both of those things should be working in our hearts as we're sharing Christ. I know the joy of salvation, of the wrath of God that has been absorbed for me. And I know the wrath that is coming for those who don't repent. Two realities that should never escape us as we are loving our families and our coworkers and others. So who are you sharing Christ with? I'm not saying share Christ so that you can become a Christian. I'm not saying share Christ because God will love you more. I'm saying share Christ and be motivated by the fact that there is a, a just wrath that's coming that you've been rescued from. You know where salvation is. You know where the lifeboat is. Bring people to the lifeboat. Hope for fruit of salvation, but aim at loving, a loving warning. See, God's wrath is coming. Are you ready for that?
is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones He came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on whom was laid Here in the death of Christ I
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.